This is The Paul List, daily analysis and critical engagement with comics and culture. I'm Two Ply on Twitter at T-W-O-P-L-A-I. Every day I dialogue with a comic book. My perspective is as a cultural critic, academic, and teacher and preacher. So I always try to be analytical. Sometimes I get a little philosophical. Sometimes I get a little bit spiritual. But since I do analysis of a comic's work each day for 20 minutes, I do get into the details, so I always suggest that you read the work first, whether you buy it from a retailer or get it digitally. Yes, that is a spoiler warning. All right, let's dig deep. Today is Friday, and that means we do the Friday Find which is a book that is a little bit off the beaten track. It might be an indie book, a small press book. Um, in this case, not that small. We're looking at Boom Studios' um, trade paperback release of the miniseries, four-issue miniseries, The Fiction, uh, written by Kurt Pyers and drawn by David Rubin. Before I launch into that today, um, and I'll tie it back to the book itself, uh, I just want to comment briefly on what I'm doing here. If you're listening, um, for some somehow you've found this, you must be listening to a, the back catalog because at this point nobody is listening uh, except myself to these. Uh, I haven't really publicized this um, this podcast series. Um, but uh, you know, if if you're listening, you're you're interested in comics, or you're interested in my perspective, and you're interested in my point of view, and. Um, uh, you know, I think an open question is why am I doing this? Why do we, any of us, do this? Why do I sp- speak into this mic and record this? Why are you listening to this? Um, and uh, you know, part of my thoughts here are inspired by a, a discussion that I witnessed. I didn't really participate in it, but uh, uh, it was uh, started because uh, comics writer Kelly Sue DeConnick, who is um, pretty amazing. I, I really enjoy her work. She's written uh, books like Captain Marvel at Marvel um, and uh, the Pretty Deadly and Bitch Planet, part of my language, at Image Comics. And um, she's just an an awesome perspective. But uh, she tweeted this question, do quote-unquote comics journalism sites have fact checkers? And it was was not really meant as an attack. I think it was a genuine question. Um, But it really came across to many uh, questioning the credentials of comics journalist sites. Um, and really, my perspective on the matter is that if we try to compare what people do when they write and podcast and discuss comics to, uh, honestly, even, even you know, uh, journalistic coverage of Hollywood, it's really the wrong comparison because the frameworks by which we judge the professional... <laughs> the sort of professionalization of journalism in the 20th century really don't apply in the same way. And it doesn't mean that we can't have journalistic integrity or objectivity or fact-check things when we um, cover comics in whatever fora, but the truth is most of us, almost all of us, are doing this for free. Um, And it's not a job, and it's not what we do as our 9-to-5. Most of us do it out of our passion, uh, out of our interest, out of our engagement, out of this some kind of deep seated hunger within us to um to listen to stories tell stories and talk about them uh, things uh, something that is i think as as um i don't know innate to our our cultural inheritance as uh sitting down for meals together or as um telling stories to our children um and, th- and that's not to 
get it, you know, take anybody off the hook for um, being factual or having integrity or ethics and in, in when they when they talk about or report about comics. I'm just saying that um, why we do what we do, spend all of these hours recording, writing, uh, researching. Uh, uh, you know, getting into the minutia and the details about, you know, this fantastical universe or, or, or that um, bit of chronology or continuity. And, and you know, uh, it, it's just, uh, I think it's easy to forget that people get lost in these worlds get invested in these worlds and then they talk about these worlds not because it sustains us uh, materially or puts food on the table um, but because we're passionate and so even though I have written for a few different sites I, I would never consider myself a journalist I I know that that is a real job and I, and I know that I don't know how to do that real job um, and I don't cover news um, because of that and not not to throw shade at anybody who does. I think that um, you know my friends and people I know who do that are are just doing something really amazing. Sometimes you know it's it's tough, laborious, and and you know with few rewards. Um, and people are hungry for it. Otherwise, it wouldn't exist. Um, but I I think uh, what I'm saying is that the reason that I'm here and the reason we're doing the Paul list is because there is something about these stories and their depiction and the way that the medium uh, engages us visually and, um, you know, and gutturally <laughs> and spiritually and uh, morally and so on. Me and these words, I, I'm always listing off those words. I'm sorry about that. Uh, it's a tick. Um, there's something about these stories that we can't not talk about them. Um, and that's what brings me here, because to be honest, I don't have very much time. I have, this is my summer break as both a teacher and a researcher, um, a graduate student. I have a family to uh, feed and raise and, and be with. Um, I have, uh, you know, unfinished essays and unfinished, um, you know, interviews that I haven't turned into pieces yet. So I feel a little guilty, honestly, every time I get in front of this mic to talk about a comic book because I know that I have a responsibility to others. Um, and yet I'm doing this. This is a trial uh, run because I, it actually it's the easiest way for me to contain, to tell myself, okay, 20 minutes a day talking about what you're reading and thinking about. Get it out there. Work it out in this forum. And uh, unfortunately subjecting you, oh dear listener, who is as yet non-existent, to my ramblings. <laughs> and so that's uh, probably no comfort to you <laughs> uh, if you're wondering why you're wasting your time listening to me. But uh, if you're not, if you're here for whatever reason, I hope it's because you share this interest, this curiosity, and this passion. That's why we're here. We get lost in a story, for better or for worse. Um, and I, you know, I say all this to explain what I'm doing here, uh, maybe just to myself, <laughs> and maybe to my wife, if you're listening. Hi, wife. <laughs> um, but actually, it also um, brings us into the book today. So the fiction is a, a series that wound up as a four-issue miniseries. And I say that because I don't think, I'm not sure, I haven't gone back and checked, but I don't think this was intended originally as a four-issue miniseries. And, and, you know, if you read it, you'll probably know what I mean. It seems to be laying out a more ambitious story 
than uh, is actually accomplished. Um, and the trade paperback's just been released from Boom, uh, Boom Studios, Boom exclamation point, Boom. <laughs> um, but uh, it collects the four issues, about 116 pages or so. I um, I can't say that I would, you know, urge people to run out and buy it. I think it's um, worth reading for a couple of reasons that I'll talk about here. But I think what's interesting to me about it and the reason why it shows up in the Friday Find is because it's just another example and a shorter one of um, the kind of metatextuality that occurs in comics. Um, and if I just throw a big word at you that uh, you don't enjoy, let me just unpack that a little bit. You know, meta meaning um, <laughs> being able to uh, rise sort of above yourself and observe yourself and uh textual in the sense that it's a text that's about text it's a text that's about textuality it's a story about about stories um comics does this quite a lot in fact you know people would say oh postmodern era you know meta textuality is where it's at everything is meta these days and meta meta <laughs> i never met a meta that i didn't uh regret meeting uh but um but actually, comics have been metatextual forever. Um, if you go back and look at some Golden Age comics, and I wish I could pull up an example here, but that would involve preparation, which I have <laughs> made a rule against. <laughs> um, but if you look at, at Golden Age comics, the amount of self-awareness, um, I mean, even back to newspaper strips, even back to the you know, occult and the, and the yellow kid, it's sort of like comics can't help but be aware that of the medium and the... the um, the i don't know how they come to be you know that they are you know inky uh stories drawn on newsprint um and and no doubt it's because the creators themselves are are constantly aware of the status of comics and how um they are whiling away hours usually drawing and creating stories for which the compensation doesn't really merit the work what you know, what they do is almost always out of passion um, to connect again to what I was talking about earlier as far as comics journalism. I mean, you know, you just have to read the story of Jack Kirby and his estate, all that he has accomplished and um, how much it took to get that acknowledged and rewarded. And I think that makes the point. Um, but comics have always been metatextual. And the other thing about it is that... Um, uh, you know, it it they emerge in an era of art uh, and uh, literary production and commerce when some kind of self awareness is inevitable, um, sort of modernity. You know, and uh, and so um, the fiction is, I think, just another example of that kind of metatextuality. Um, played out in a certain way. So the premise of the story, <laughs> I like how it always takes me like 10 minutes before I even tell what the heck the, the book is about. Uh, I'll work on that. I think it's probably important to do it earlier. But the, the story is essentially that there are um, these four uh, kids and their family friends and their parents are involved in some sort of maybe nefarious shenanigans, some sort of, um, there's, they are some sort of club or group. Um, it's really reminiscent if you've read the series Runaways from Marvel by, written by Brian K. Vaughn, drawn by a bunch of folks, um, uh, uh, Adrian Alfonso, shoot, did I get his name right? <laughs> uh, among the artists. Anyway, 
The Runaways is, is a very similar premise. Basically, parents are up to something, maybe no good. We're not really sure. And meanwhile, the kids are upstairs playing, situation many of us know well. Uh, and the kids have become friends. They've grown up together. And these four kids um, uh, are, are basically up in the attic, and they find a book. And when they open the book, um, and this is a, 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 a trope that's come up in various stories, um, when they find the book, they enter the book. All of a sudden, they find themselves as they, you know, begin to read aloud the story, you know, uh, magically entering into the story world. Um, it's a, it's sort of one of these, you know, old, old style looking leather bound books or something like that with an F at the front. I don't know. I think that's meant to maybe stand for the fiction. Um, and uh, they disappear. They get lost in this book. Uh, the characters' names are Tyler, Tang, Max, and Cassie. And, um, you know, it takes them into the fantastic world that's supposedly inside the book. And what kicks the story off, and, and from here on I'm going to assume that you've read the book. Um, and so if you absolutely don't want to be spoiled, although probably not get into too many spoilers, it's primarily analysis of the premise that I'm talking about today. Um, they, they get lost in the book, and then one of the kids... Um, uh, who uh, who is the child of mm, what you know what it, what is an apparently a somewhat abusive um, definitely sort of shady character father uh, but one of the kids Tang um, disappears in the world and the other three come back to the world and you know they're they're now dealing with the fallout of it they've been dealing with the fallout of it their whole lives. And so when the book begins, you know, we flash back to these four kids as kids, but but we're now in the present day. These uh, they're grown, and we know we're we know Tyler, we know Max, we know Cassie. Tang has disappeared in the story, and you know they it flashes back throughout the the book to the them dealing with as I said the fallout um, of their friend disappearing in this story, and they're you know unwilling to. Uh, to fess up to what happened because I don't know, nobody would believe them. Who knows? Um, <laughs> there, there are a lot of things that are laid out in the, uh, uh, not laid out. There, there are a lot of things that are put out there that really aren't uh, explained or finished. And what, what's pretty obvious as you go through the book is that uh, Kurt Pyers, who's, uh, you know, pretty, pretty competent writer, comics writer. He, he's uh, written other series such as pop um, and uh, tomorrow's that's you know going on now, uh, but Kurt Pyers definitely had a lot more in mind than he could fit into the four issues. And my guess, it, my guess is that sales figures um, compelled Boom to let him know that he had to wrap it up sooner. They had to wrap it up sooner than intended. Um, but uh, basically, uh, the grown version of Tyler and Max and Cassie, you know, have to re-enter. What happens is Tyler gets sucked back into the book's world. Uh, Max and Cassie re-enter to try to find him and to figure out what's going on. And in a way, it's a it's a uh, confronting again the story of what happened to them as children, um, and then confronting again what um, what it meant for them to have experienced going into the fantasy world of this book together. Now, I, I pause at this point to point out the artist is David Rubin. Um, he's kind of arrived on the scene. He seems super productive, especially for the, I think, the level of craft that he displays. The art in this is really quite um, quite eye-catching. Um, Rubin is, uh, I don't know, I, I first came to know him because um, Paul Pope, who's a well-known uh, cartoonist, 
had a book called Battling Boy, uh, won a lot of awards, had a lot of acclaim, just a, a very, I don't know, how do you explain Paul Pope's art? It's, it's very inky, it's very, um, it's the kind of art that if you're not, well, whether you are or aren't a, a deep comics reader, you'll look at it and you just can't stop looking at it. And it may even be uh, strange looking at first and you just sort of are absorbed in it. And I'm going on about Paul Pope this long because he's a hard act to follow. And so after Battling Boy, he wanted to continue to tell stories about the world of Battling Boy, but he wanted to bring along another artist to do it, probably because it's just a lot of work. And so the artist he brought along was the Spanish artist, David Rubin. And Rubin had um, done a graphic novel called The Hero in Spanish. It's now been since translated, published by Dark Horse, um, about the story of Hercules. And in um, in both the Battling Boy follow-ups and in and in Hero um, from Dark Horse, and now on the art duties in this story, um, Rubin has this knack for... Ooh, how do I describe what the art is doing? It is just um, somehow beautiful and visceral. It is... It, it's like he draws things that look like your innards <laughs> like cilia uh, you know like biological looking stuff i mean even his all his fantasy elements his his sort of creatures and monsters they have this almost feeling of your guts you know like parts of your inner body but it drawn in sort of a, a cartoony way and it create it makes everything have a almost organic feel that tips between um, lovely and and gross, uh, <laughs> and I think Paul Pope does this, and he, and they do it with sort of healthy splashes of ink and a lot of um, uh, roundedness in their in their lines, um, what they do with color, um, and I won't go too much more into the analysis here. Uh, the art analysis, uh, partly because I'm not super capable of doing that. Um, but overall, I think the effect of whether it's Pyres that chose um, Rubin to be the artist or whether they came together to create the story together or an editor, the overall effect is the sense of the fiction uh, as a story and as, as a world that the kids get lost into as something that is both fantasy external, like you know, of the far off world that you dream of and, and something deeply internal, something that exists in your guts. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if that makes sense. I mean, open the book and look at it and tell me if you think it's, it's that way. And so the story doesn't get very far. Um, you know, basically they enter the fiction, they find out, uh, what happened to their friends, uh, they flash back into the, you know, sort of expected romance elements and, uh, you know, sort of cheesy, uh, where were you, my friend, and my life changed forever, blah, blah, blah. Um, it's not poorly done. It's just um, no big surprise. But again, it just seems obvious that much more was intended than they were actually able to execute. But I think what interests me about it, why it's my Friday find, is because the story and the art in combination suggests to me that this metafictional um, thing, this idea that we get lost in the the stories, 
this appealing um, trope, <laughs> let's call it, of of your um, your imaginative realities becoming, I mean, your imaginative worlds becoming your reality. Uh, I think that's something that speaks to why we read, uh, why we hear stories, why we tell them to each other, um, why we long for it to be a shared experience, and how sometimes we live in mourning because people get lost in these stories in ways that are different from us. Um, I guess I put it this way, you know, when you're a teenager, it often happens that you have friends that you grew up with and you go different ways. Uh, you go different ways because, you know, they choose to party or you don't and you don't or vice versa, you know, or they become bookworms and, and you don't, uh, or athletes and they get lost in that world. Um, and I think in a similar way, I, I've had the experience, I'm sure many others have too, that you also can be into things as a kid. Um, you know, I look at my daughter now and how much she's into the, you know, the stories, the TV shows, the comic books that she sees, the imaginative worlds that they create and the characters and their relationships. And she wants her friends to be into those too. And whether or not your friends and companions are into those things, whether they get lost in that imaginative world, the way that you do has some kind of stakes for our sense of identity and identification with these stories. It's like it matters to us so much if there are other fans and if we have other people to walk into that world with. And then it happens, of course, that sometimes our fancies take us in a different direction. And meanwhile, so-and-so are still lost in, in that world. And how much of our childhood you know, <laughs> um, teeth gnashing is about the fact that you know somebody else, they've moved on from being into this thing that I thought we were into together. And it's sort of like we walked into this imaginative world together and then we, there was a fork and we split and we lost somebody. And you know, on a, on a real life scale, you think back, who cares? Does this really matter? Does it really matter that they're not watching Game of Thrones and I'm obsessed with it? Why does that matter to us? But I think, um, I, I don't know that this is what the fiction is after, um, what the fiction is about. Um, but I think the question for us is why? Why do these imaginative worlds matter to us so much? And what does it mean to our relationships, our human relationships, and our sense of connection to one another when we, you know, when the paths that we travel may not be physical ones when the sidewalks that we walk down uh, aren't made of concrete um, but they you know are are created from the gut level in which we live um, so that's what the fiction made me think about and um, probably I'm overthinking it <laughs> but uh, I, you know I hey here I am 25 minutes into this discussion and uh, if anyone out there is listening here you are 25 minutes or so minutes into listening to it, why have we even come here? And I, I mean, I think at the end of this, to cap it off, I would suggest that those cultural worlds that we create, imagine, live into, so to speak, uh, those worlds that we live into are um, important. They run parallel to our material realities, to our actual physical lives to our actual relationships they run parallel and they help us to make sense of the worlds 
that we live in, of the relationships that we have. And because they do and because they matter to us, they require us to attend to them. They require us to pay attention to where they are going. Um, it's, it's an important matter for our existence. Our fantasy, our escape is, um, is not insubstantial. You know, it's, it's corporeal, it's real, it's flesh. Um, that's what I'm suggesting. And, um, and that's why I'm here. And I hope that's why you're here. And I hope you'll keep going on this journey with me. So listen, tomorrow is uh, Saturday. And I'm going to try to actually get ahead of the schedule and try recording. Uh, plus, i got to do all the writing i got to do. Um, but uh, tomorrow is Saturday. And, and it's Super Friends. It's the Saturday Super Friend. And so I'm going to talk about DC Comics and get into the Flash number one. Uh, just released in, as part of their rebirth. <laughs> relaunch whatever it is. Um, but I just want to thank you for joining me and being here, uh, being a companion on the journey. I hope I can hear from you and, uh, let me know what you think about, uh, all that I'm talking about. Um, I'm, I'm at two ply on Twitter and, um, two ply at Gmail also works. All right. Best to you. And let's keep reading.